0: Wow, thanks. Um, It actually feels amazing and wonderful to be in Malmö. This is a city that I've missed, I've loved. I've lived here for seven years. That was a long time ago. Back then I was a young aspiring entrepreneur. Now I'm no longer young, and as you hear, I'm now a bureaucrat. Strange how life goes, perhaps even more strange that they allow me to stand on this stage. However, I'm truly honored and happy to be here. Innovation though, even though it sounds strange, it's always been at the, the bridge is innovation for me. I've always been working with that. Innovation in the meaning of the word, radically improving technology, a product, a business model, or a way of working. And I used to focus on innovation in products, leading team, and now I kind of focus on leading teams, looking at innovation at the societal level. And as a society in Sweden, we are consistently Considered to be really good at this, so almost no no matter who ranks Sweden, we come out on the top of countries uh, uh, of innovative countries, right? So that's great. So in my capacity now, I often get the question, not least from other countries, like how did you how did you do it? What was your recipe for success? And that's one thing, but I think a more important question would be where do we go from here? So I'm going to try to reflect a bit on that. I think many of you actually. Uh, You already know a lot about this, because you're probably part of this community. You are the innovators, the entrepreneurs, the leaders in local communities, the researchers in this topic, and you're well aware that Sweden is also highly successful in having a large number of very innovative companies, both companies with a 100-year-old history and companies with a shorter history. So, coming back then to what did we do right Well, a few things. First of all, of course, it's all about the entrepreneurs, the people putting their talents, their ambitions, all of the time and effort they can into building something new and something better and really daring to put themselves out there. There's entrepreneurs in generations of them, like we remember early stage, uh, early 90s, with people who actually, even from the beginning, started about thinking about making an impact in the world, international, Growth, connecting themselves to Silicon Valley, for instance, building networks, coming back and making choices, choices that were about paying it forward then, you know, give back Uh, knowledge, networks, investment, functioning as investors, advisors, mentors, etc. So this culture of paying it forward, this culture of openness and trust that I think this whole event also is a great example of, has really been key to our success. And we know that, so we... We keep working like that. It's also about more boring kind of stuff. Reforms, investments into infrastructure in the 90s. We had the early days of really uh, making the broadband work and lowering thresholds for many, creating opportunities for many. Opportunities that makes that we can draw on our entire talent pool. That's why the home PC reform was important, et cetera. Just getting as many people as possible, um, having these opportunities. So that was good. And then, of course, there's money. It's always about the money. Sweden is a country that consistently, for a long time, has made investing into research and innovation a priority. In fact, we spend 3.5% of our total GDP on research and innovation. Most of this money comes from the private sector. 25% of that number comes from uh, government and the state and our our shared uh, resources and that's where Vinova uh, comes in as a part of that puzzle. So how do you how what is the task then? The task is to actually uh, make sure that again a lot of innovation activities can happen. Lower the thresholds, lower the risk, make sure that entrepreneurs together with academia, together with public sector, together with the civil society. I saw Metos Platz Social Innovation here and um, can take risk, risk that private capital is not yet willing to take, to try out new things, to build new collaborations, to learn from each other. So that's kind of at the core of why you have an innovation agency, such as Vinoa. Um, And then you do things, like you try to invest into stuff that we can share and that can benefit many is and, and shorten lead time. So for once, for instance, making advanced infrastructure available to many. Here in Skåne, we have world leading research infrastructure in the form of ESS and MAX 4 where it's actually possible to study materials, biology, food, at the molecular and atom level. And that's not just for academia. More and more companies start understanding the strategic value of actually doing that, to start innovating on the knowledge that they do. And then, of course, they collaborate with academia in doing so. Or, you know, further up, here's an example of another advanced uh, structure. It's Testa Center. It's a factory for advanced pharmaceutical production. So anybody with an idea for pharmaceutical production can get to go there and try out their idea in a real setting, getting access to really advanced equipment, to expertise, to knowledge, to networks, potential first customer, etc. Actually making it possible to shorten the time it takes to have an idea and find a good product market fit and then find out what works and get what they need to propel forward. And of course it's also about investing in the people. So the places, the incubators, the accelerators, where new innovative ideas can get support, learn from each other, connect internationally, learn best practice, and the processes then that connect, connects the innovator with great ideas with those who understand the problem. Problems that can be hidden deep into some industrial value chain or in the public sector and try to build this capacity together okay, that's great. That's stuff we did right so far. That's basically best practice of innovation policy in the world as it is. And it's not enough. It's nowhere even near enough. We know that. We know we're working towards hard deadlines right now. These deadlines are set by the planet. We cannot negotiate with the planet, we have to adapt. Meaning, innovation is not neutral. A paradigm where growth is the essential goal, competition is the way to get there, and any way of moving fast and working things is okay, uh, doesn't really work. So there is a huge difference in whether we use these capacities and these abilities into innovations that accelerate, um, let's say, accelerates the stuff that's, that's already too bad, the, uh, accelerates our challenges, accelerates our health problems, accelerates uh, the consumption of endless resources, accelerates all the problems that we're sharing. Or if we are actively searching for the innovations that accelerates the transformation of this all, that um, can help us Uh, build even faster, find the solutions that transform every city, every value chain, every consumption pattern into something sustainable. So for instance, a solution that in itself, technology-wise, seems good, electrification of transport, put into a business model and a whole paradigm that's still based on increased transport, increased (laughs) resource extraction, and less Uh, physical activity for us deteriorating our health is, even though in a way it's good, it's actually accelerating the problem. So how do we go from there into an innovation paradigm that accelerates solutions, that even accelerates this transformation at the scale that will transform our entire society? Um, That's what system innovation is. When you have Uh, solutions, innovations that actually together shift us into an entirely new system that's called system innovation. We've had it before. The first industrial revolution is an example. Um, Putting electricity into society was another. As moving from horse and carriage to cars was a third. All of these kind of made fundamental shifts in the way we organize society, in the way we behave, in where jobs are even created, what on earth we're doing uh, with our time, etc. And trying to find the recipes for not only doing that, because as somebody said, you know, we already have the solutions, they're better, they're gonna take over, they're gonna win. Problem is, it takes decades to do it. So actually, the question is, how do we do that, which we have done before, but in a vastly shorter time? And that's what transformative innovation policy is about. So I'm here trying to kind of talk policy to the ones who are actually doing innovation, and and we can help um, uh, put these perspectives together. so then, how do you do that? How do you organize for that? How do we innovate? How we even innovate? <laughs> so that we can start pushing this shift. Well, then, looking back, of course, there are things that we can learn from history. One thing that has been mentioned many times was that mobilization of resources towards a common goal makes a difference. So one of the examples that was mentioned early on was... The Apollo mission, the mission of putting a man on the moon and getting him back within one generation, actually managed to mobilize about 20% of the US economy at the time. It generated large amounts of innovation, not only in space technology, but materials, food, etc. Had a big impact, right? And at the same time, uh, te- more technology, really, is that what we're gonna aim for? And to be honest, Um, rocket science of that time was less complex than the stuff we need to change this time. So, hmm. And then, oh yes, there's this. What kind of context do we have to drive this transformation and these innovations in? There's volatility. So, for instance, we've noticed during the pandemic there were a lot of what we call supply chain shocks, we noticed that, you know, things that were going to, how many of you were impacted by the shortage of uh, semiconductors, difficult to buy computers, hardware, etc.? pretty much everyone noticed. So you had these kind of shocks in the supply chains due to, and an, an, uh, I read a report and analysis that said, of course, it was in part due to the pandemic, you know, lockdowns, people couldn't go to work, etc. Then there was also the extreme weather, a series of unfortunate weather events, the report said, the floods. The fires, the stuff that meant the trucks could not move as they could. And then there was the geopolitical tensions and actual antagonistic threats in terms of active cyber attacks on, for instance, crucial trading ports and nodes in the world that makes things stand still. So a question we should ask ourselves is which of these factors do we think is gonna go away anytime soon? And which of them was just gonna be here? So in the sense, we're gonna have a new normal that we've been propelled in by the pandemic, not only in the sense of the word that we usually mean, but also this, like more volatility. And then, oh yes, there's this. The uncertainty of complex systems that I think we're gonna hear more about the fact that it's all deeply interconnected. One thing feeds into another, and there's going to be effects that we cannot really foresee and that we do not fully understand. So here's a picture actually from a report on the uh, interdependency on the effects of heat waves in India. So you get heat waves, and then you increase the consumption of energy of air conditioning, and then you make a peak electricity demand, and then you get power outages, and then you start using other kinds of energy sources, and then you get increasing coal trains, and then you get public transport doesn't suffice, and then suddenly you also get etc. And in the end, you get long term health uh, impacts, etc. So, yes, it's complex, and this is not stuff that we can top down govern, that we can find the perfect organization for, that we can plan ourselves out of. This is a complex system, but we do know a few things about the fact, and we heard Victor talk about this, we can all impact them. So this sounds like a lot, but then, you know, there's the good news. (laughs) So I would say we have actually uh, proven to ourselves in this last pandemic that as a global community, we are capable of massive, large-scale, rapid change. What happened during the pandemic was that every individual, every community, every organization, every country both innovated and made a lot of changes, right? So one of the things we did was that we were capable as a global community to uh, innovate vaccines and put them to market at scale faster than ever in 15 months. How long did it used to take? 15 years. Years. So of course this was building on research and knowledge that we have built over decades. It's not like the knowledge was just suddenly there. But taking this knowledge, putting them into innovation that could actually be scaled, well, that required innovations in how we worked. Things happened differently. They shared data and information about clinical studies. We chose to actually do them more in parallel than before, learning faster than before. So changes in way of working in existing institutions actually cut the lead time from 15 years to 15 months. That's pretty amazing right? And at the same time whatever sector we looked into like the creative industry or schools or restaurants we saw innovation everywhere in terms of so how do we both responsibly act (laughs) in time of this pandemic and at the same time how can we at some level still keep it working right? How many were part of this somehow you know? buying food in another way, interacting with your restaurant, doing different things in schools, etc. So the fact that we had this pandemic actually uh, unleashed innovation in, in pretty much every sector of the world. So what happened? What is it that we can draw from this? What was it that made us capable of doing this kind of shift in such a short time? Was it reorganizing all of society? No. We actually used existing institutions, existing workplaces, everything, but we did share a clear, common mission, saying we're going to beat this pandemic. And everybody did it as an individual organisation or a nation. And we're prepared to, because we shared a real sense of urgency, prepared to reallocate resources, time, people, money, and act differently. So tough decisions were made. Not the right one, not not the same one everywhere. It was kind of interesting to see how different the policy responses were. So here comes another thing. We were also humble enough to admit that we do not have the answer. We have to act anyways. And I think in Sweden we were very clearly reminded of this. It's not like and can bet that we're doing the exact right thing. We're going to have to evaluate later, but we're going to have to try. And we did see policy responses vary a lot between different contexts as they should. But as a population, we accepted risk, we accepted experimentation, and we were willing to learn from each other. This happens to be some of the playbook rules for how can we drive large-scale systems change together. And we just proved we can do it. So, you know, thanks, y'all. That was pretty good. Another thing that we know about this type of innovation is that it's not, and we've heard it before, it's not about technology fixes. It's not even enough to just change the business models. There are no, like, real... uh, It's essentially, it's not even just about supply side innovations. Uh, If we want to speed things up, we have to address demand side as well. There has to be real demand. So we heard a panel before talk about, you know, we have to phase out there has to be less demand for the stuff that's not regenerative, that's not sustainable. And then build demand for the new stuff. So We can do that in a number of ways. Public procurement, is mentioned in Sweden, we are spending 80 billion euros a year in public procurement. Legally, it's completely allowed to use that for both buying innovations, new solutions. You can also use any kind of procurement as a tool to actually demand uh, different types of solutions. This is also beginning to happen. The U.S. government did it with Apollo. They did it with DARPA, um, and now here's from uh, First Movers Coalition, large multinationals all over the world also beginning to do that, pledging to use their supply, their so- sourcing, their uh, procurement as a tool to actually drive uh, towards both net zero emissions and, and buy solutions that help accelerate the transformation. Um, I wonder where I am with time. 13 minutes, right? (laughs) Oh, two minutes left. Ouch, so this took way longer. It's not only about sometimes we don't have to reorganize, sometimes we do. So right now when companies are reorganizing all their supply chains, are they then actively also driving just new linear value chains or already driving circular ones? Question. We have to choose. We cannot just resource for industrial resilience and not care about transformation. We have to care about transformation. And if we're going to get these new ecosystems that, by the way, open up tons of opportunities for innovation, uh, we need to share data. I'm terribly out of time, because this was what I wanted to say. So At Vinova we've been piloting this work. Then I can just say, we, we left a playbook we want to learn. It's about sending the missions together, politicians, citizens, researchers, looking at what's the societal outcome that we really work, want, that we can work towards together, unpacking the angles. What is a healthy, resilient, mobility system, not just effective, not just fossil free, actually driving also health outcomes on the populational level. What's that? What do we need to do for that? How do we engage people and make it real close to people? So innovating even every street. And that was an amazing experience to see how the dialogue would happen. We did it with food. Again, what is a healthy regenerative food system and where are the points where we can build multiple outcomes at once? School food, long-term health for kids, new habits in food, public procurement of the type of food we actually need, not just the ones we have, etc. This is happening. We're mobilizing. Malmö is one of the cities. We're also combining it, building platforms connected to the EU missions in terms of... transforming uh, into uh, societies, and when we're looking at the tensions that the transformation means, and I come from the north, and here you really see it. It's changing so fast, having a real impact on the local communities. How do we then work together to create the ideas, use our imagination to create the real idea? of what can it then be. Not letting fear drive us, but imagination, co-creating ideas of what the future can be that we want, that we can build. So that's why we at Vinova are now building all of our programs around these different principles. But we need you, because we're not going to do it. You are. So what you are going to do, I hope, is use the fact that we're giving out calls now to start mobilizing. Will you mobilize around missions for real societal outcomes? We will help you get access to the ones you need, the big international multinational companies, the government agencies, the international contexts. We will support you in building processes where researchers and entrepreneurs and policymakers work together to set these these missions, unpack them, and work together on portfolios of experimentation that can address regulations policy, technology, business models, and behavior at the same time. So we need you for that. I hope you'll help us with that. Thank you.